Welcome to the New Books Network. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. The way this show works is that Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the podcast for the first time. Before we talk about today's film, we just have to say we are so excited now to be part of the New Books Network. How great is this, Mike? Uh, Thrilling. Thrilling. These are our people. These are our people, absolutely. So you can follow the show now on the New Books Network website, which is, it's located under the, the category Academic Partners. It's also on the New Books and Film site. And I also do author interviews with them. It's a terrific site. It's got everything that interests you. They have history, anthropology, music, literature, philosophy. I mean, you name it. So thank you so much to the folks at the New Books Network. Um, we hope you'll check out their website and all the unbelievable podcasts they drop every day. It's an, it's an awesome, awesome endeavor. So that said, Time to talk about our movie. Mike, what movie are we doing this week? Sunset Boulevard, which I can't believe we've not spoken about before. We, we have never, we've known each other a long time. and just never had a long conversation about Sunset Boulevard, hence the pod. Directed by Billy Wilder in 1950, written by Wilder, Charles Brackett, and D.M. Marshman Jr. In part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. We try to kind of talk about the overall sense of what the movie is like and what hit us this time as we watched it. So Mike, go. I was looking up... Uh character names as I typically do before we record, just so I don't forget, though I often do. Uh, And someone on Google described this as tense, taut, and dark. Um, And I can't help but find Sunset Boulevard uh, to be a comedy. So I wanted to get your take on that in the first part, because I think think that there are dark elements of it, and I certainly see how someone could, could see it that way. But I can't help but find this movie funny and i can't help but find its performances winning and entertaining even though ultimately it it goes to some dark places i don't think of it as a dark movie i really see it as a billy wilder movie and i just wanted to get your take on that well it's not a knee slapper and certainly the humor is dark right so so i mean in a regular farce he would be mistaken in the beginning not for he would be mistaken for like the pool guy or the plumber not for the guy who's there to arrange the funeral for the monkey Right. So there's something like that. And I think if someone said, what's the humor like? I'd say it's more arch or it's more, you know, ironic than it than it is. It's not funny in the same way that say some like it hot is funny. I could buy I, so I can buy arch. But I think one thing is, is Joe's narration, at least his opening narration. I think it takes away some of the pain yes. uh, of, of the of the drama. Right. Oedipus does not come back and, and you know, narrate Oedipus to you. Just things things happen to him. Lear does not provide. Uh, a first person narration for Lear. You, he just falls down. Uh, but there's something about Joe's narration that makes it harmless. I think almost in kind of the same structure as like a Wiley Coyote cartoon. He just wants things. He runs away from people. He wants things and he, and he can't get them. He doesn't get the girl. He doesn't keep his car. He doesn't have a comfortable life anywhere. He doesn't get to make his movie. And I think that the accumulation of those frustrations, um, I, I find funny in their treatment. Yeah, I think his his voiceovers are always ironically undercutting the action. Like when he's like, I always wanted a pool. And, but and of course, he was lying dead in the pool. And I think in the first half of the movie, those ironic 
comments kind of shield him from what's going on because he doesn't want to get emotionally involved with her and but he keeps getting drawn in and he keeps he keeps trying to maintain his distance but out of pity and i think of a lot of other about feeling like a kept guy and thinking that he owes her something and feeling sorry for her eventually his irony is harder to sustain yeah but there's something about survival after natural death his survival (laughs) after natural death as as a filmic entity has a lot to do with i think norma's survival after her natural death and i so i i think that the 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 fit of the form and content is too felicitous not to make it not to make it funny it's certainly not a tragedy but i i get what you mean by not a knee slapper or not like some like it hot but i did i didn't find it you know taut and a uh, gripping you know in, in the way that some other movies are just like a stomach ache this one certainly didn't make my stomach ache i just think it's one of the best written movies i've ever seen yeah it is certainly one of the best written movies i've ever seen too let's talk about let's talk about norma desmond a little more i think that when i saw it this time I, you know i knew this already but i was again struck by what a great meditation this is about fame and its effects on people right so we all we you know remember lifestyles of the rich and famous with with robin leach right we all kind of imagine i think that if we became famous, so the podcast takes off, right? And and we we are we the herb podcast guys, and we be, you become super famous, or you become super rich. We kind of still think that we'd have the core of ourselves in there, like we'd have like maybe you'd have a nicer house, you'd have a cooler car, you'd get to go travel the world and stuff like. But like you'd still be Mike, and like I'd still be Dan, right? Now history shows us that that's not the case. That that people think they can do it, but it turns out they can't. And sometimes people narrowly escape it and get to kind of like live a normal life. But the people either they overdose or they retreat into insanity or they get married twelve times. Like a, a lot of the stuff happens where they can't maintain that core of themselves anymore. Um, Norma Desmond thinks she can. She thinks she's handling it with dignity, right? The whole world went wrong, but she's true to herself. So it's kind of true. It's kind of cool how the movie dramatizes that idea. Yeah, fame is one of those things which you could certainly live without. But once you've got a dose of it, there's there's something toxic about if it stays, but also if it goes away. Um, and I I think that um, her still receiving, you you, you got to wonder what's actually in the the fan mail. You know, quote unquote, that she receives. That Max writes. You, you know exactly. You know what is it? What is it that sh- that he imagines that she wants to hear people say to her? And, and that's, I think, that the missing, like the purloined element of this of this movie. But it's kind of diffuse in everything else. It's in the way that she puts her house together, her her own screenplay together. Well, you just said that you said fame is toxic, right? And certainly when I was seeing it again this week, it's certainly a drug to her. It's certainly like she is like the classic line that alcoholics say where, you know, one's too many and a hundred isn't enough, right? One letter from a fan is too many and a hundred isn't enough. And that fame is toxic. And that Max is kind of like her enabler. That's exactly what he is in the movie, right? But it's also interesting because Norma Desmond is not just a simple caricature. She's not just a figure of fun. She has a lot of funny lines. She does a lot of funny things where we laugh at her. Sometimes we laugh with her, but she's also pathetic, I think, in the literal sense of the of the word. Like she she kind of earns our pity. She's never unlikable. Um William Holden is kind of stuck because he he wants to be more ironic, like he said at the beginning, but he also kind of pities her as well. And I think that's why Max is in the movie. Like Max is the extreme to which Joe is not going to go. And Max knows that kind of like he doesn't pity her. He loves her. And sometimes to, to love someone is you're going to lie to him. Like he, he loves her the way like you, you love your kids. And so you write a letter from Santa Claus to your kids to kind of like keep up this illusion 
of their innocence. And that's kind of how Max sees her. And I think that's how the viewer sees her too. Well, I, I mean, I think he orbits her like the moon orbits <laughs> the earth. Like there, there, like there's just, there's something about her gravity, like literally her, her gravity that has drawn him in. And now it's, and now it's inescapable. And I think that Joe also finds it, uh, finds it inescapable, except that he, he tries to achieve some kind of escape velocity uh, and finds out the hard way that there's that there's still no way out. I think that this is also one of those movies. I mean, this movie screams, I have a flashy ending from the beginning. You know what I mean? I, 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 you may not see the the ending coming as in the last scene when she's coming down the stairwell, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the movie telegraphs to you that it's going to have some kind of big ending. And if the trick works, then the ending works, right? Because this is about a failed movie star looking for her one last scene and she certainly gets the last scene and it works. And so there's got to be something about Norma that still works. Welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments. I mean, you could literally stop this movie at any moment and talk about it. But Mike, this time around, what moment delighted you from this movie? Uh, was it Billy Wilder who said that a, a, a great movie has uh, only good three great scenes and no bad ones? Howard Hawks said that. Howard Hawks. Okay. Uh, well, Anyway, uh, I'll sh I'll share one of the great scenes from this movie, at least for me, which is when Joe asks Norma for money because his car is being towed while they're playing the bridge game. Uh, and I, I believe she's playing with Buster Keaton. Yes. And a couple of other great uh, silent stars from the era. Um, again, further adding credibility to the movie, right? Because Buster Keaton was always was always great. And she won't give him the, and she won't stop playing to give him the money. And she says, oh, I've, I've lost track of how many spades are out. And basically he has to beg her and say, no, I can't talk to you later. Cause his, his last shot at freedom is getting towed away. And she says later and like through gritted teeth and kind of pushes him off. And there's nothing that he can really do to resist. And I, I kind of just think of that as like a classic Wiley coyote moment. It's just, it's the, it's the frustration uh, of his desires but at the same time it's the frustration of his desires with a lot at stake but harmless enough that i think that the tension can be diffused into comedy like may maybe you call maybe you'd call that an arch moment but i would say that the the back and forth between the two of them is one of those funny unfunny but also funny moments that that, that that's really how the movie works and it's it's them stitched together and piled on one another with both raised stakes but also a kind of harmlessness that never makes it through to Joe until it, of course it becomes lethal. It like, it's not harmful. It's not harmful. It's not harmful. It's deadly all of a sudden, um, which, you know, you may or may not see coming, but I think that that, that scene is really a microcosm of how the movie works in terms of its, of its comedy. Yeah. Because of course she's also playing with the same people that she was, uh, she acted with that they do this. Uh, you know, there's a regular um, time they play bridge all the time. They're called the waxworks because they don't speak. They don't, they let her do everything. So everything is repeat. I mean, time is stopped inside that. Remember in the beginning that Joe says it's like Miss Havisham's house. Exactly. It, and it's like, um, it's, it, she's among her peers Yeah, and, and it's, and it's funny that her peers um, should, should be some of the greats of silent film. Yeah, because remember, in Great Expectations, remember why Miss Havisham's house is like it is? Yeah, because her fiancé leaves her at the altar. Yeah, she was spurned at the altar, right? So, you know, Norma was spurned by, of course, her fans. She was spurned by, the, you know, her move, the movie going public. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, I'm going to freeze time in here. Now, of course, the other upside of that is, well, movies last forever. I'll, I'll say one thing, which I think complicates the movie even further, which is, is Norma wrong? 
because she's got this whole thing, right? She's got this whole thing against the talkies. No, and she's the not. And the question is, wrong. is she wrong? It, are her performances not more dramatic? Are they not more, uh, more epic? I mean, has anybody ever topped, uh, you know, Nor- uh, Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond in the 70 whatever years that this has actually been a movie? You can still think of this as, as a, you know, it's a great all time performance. And so I don't, I don't necessarily think that she's wrong. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that, I promise, when we get to the ending, and her, and I'm ready for my close-up. But certainly, that's what I meant in the beginning, where she's not just silly. She's not just silly. She says a lot of things in the movie about, about the movies themselves that you can say, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, I, f- I forget who said that the scariest villains are the ones that make sense, but definitely they were thinking of Norma Desmond. So my moment is when, and it's very contemporary, we're, we are recording this now in the middle of June in 2023, and there's something that's so contemporary with what's going on in the world now. My moment is when we see Norma getting all her beauty treatments. And when she starts to make herself look better, she's convinced she's going to do the Salome movie, and she's going to play Salome, right? So we just learned this week that one of our favorite actors, friend of the pod, Al Pacino, is 82, and he's going to have another baby with his 29-year-old girlfriend, okay? Yep. So, you know, God bless him, et cetera, et cetera. We'll, ha- we'll hand out cigars for, for Al Pacino we want. Now, what's funny is that he's 82. He knows he's going to be, you know, a- as old as Mr. Burns or-, or not be around by the time the kid is, like, in college. And it just struck me that, like, when you read that story, and it's funny because De Niro did the same thing. He's 79, right? When you read that story, it again goes back to this thing about how do you think about yourself if you've been praised your whole life? Because we can look at that story. And I think the reason that the way that story has been portrayed on the internet is like, that's gross or like, there's no fool, like an old fool, or that's ridiculous. What's going on. Right. But if your whole life, you've been told how good looking you are and how cool you are, you can try to brush it off. Like we like when people are modest, but what happens if you hear that 24 seven for years and how you can't shake that? Cause you think about it in Godfather two, and I was really thinking about this, trying to up, up trying to make if I can make a, uh, a list of this. He's probably the single most charismatic actor, certainly in the '70s, right? When he's Michael in Godfather Two. Now, of course, that's why he's so scary in Godfather Two. But the way he looks, I mean, like like you would give your eye teeth to walk around and look like Al Pacino does in Godfather Two. Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, you know, right. like the ability to take over a bank and then make them love you too. The right, but I'm talking about like pure, like physical looks. Like if you had to say, like you know, we all look in the mirror, like, oh, hmm, hmm. like what if you looked in the mirror, you had you had Michael slicked back, like perfect hair, and you could just stare at people and make them nervous, and all those you had all those quads, you were like that good looking, right? Well, he doesn't look like Michael Corleone anymore, and he's like, does he think he does? I don't know. You know, Norma Desmond still thinks she's beautiful. And you could see how she was once beautiful, right? But, you know, what happens when those things are gone, but you still kind of hold on to them and pretend they are? Yeah, I I, I think you hit on it before when you said the, the movies last forever. And so th- there's, right, there's something about their immortality and our mortality that I can't imagine how it would be to be part of the movie making process to make something immortal, but yourself not to have that quality or or to recognize that it's that it's fading right because the the, the celluloid that it's printed on will still be good you know long after you've decayed you're you're um you know you're literally walking around you know with your own uh with your own portrait you know 
Yeah, because Joe at one point, at a couple points of the movie, he scolds Norman. So Norman, the crowds are coming back. No one's coming back to see these movies. Like she sits in the in, and watches her own pictures, right? So it's easy to imagine being Joe or imagine somebody on a website reading about Al Pacino and saying, "Come on, what are you doing? That's ridiculous, right? You're not Michael Corleone anymore. You you can't play Salome." But what happens if you're if you are the guy that played Michael and you are the woman who played who wants to play Salome, right? And you've been adored your whole life, and now you have to kind of face the fact that like that that's 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 not reality anymore. It's very easy to make fun of those people and to maybe scorn them or raise an eyebrow. But I think the movie makes you say, like, well, I don't know. Do you think you think you'd do any better if you No, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's the kind of morality like it um if you covered your eyes right now, you know what I mean? And you you couldn't find the pen on your desk or something, you know what I mean? Like and right, and I think I'm just so superior because I could see. See it right in front of me but of course if i did the same thing we'd be in the same boat um right. and and so it's just uh it's a morality of circumstance right it's a morality of misunderstanding yeah it's like when people um you know everyone loves to beat up on elvis right oh look what elvis did you know but you know but but of course like imagine being elvis you, you can't wrap your head around it what it's like to be the most famous person in the world for that long and to think it wouldn't affect you at all Welcome back. So in part three, we always talk about the ending or the title or the key takeaways. Dan, what do you make of the of the ending? What do you make of Norma coming down the stairwell? Again, I, I the movie sets you up yeah. to know that it's going to have some kind of trick ending, but then but then the trick works. Well, it's certainly it, that's so true. That is so true, Mike. And certainly, you know, it's it's her sunset, right? And we're on Sunset Boulevard. We get that. My thought was that she retreats from reality into this world of madness, right? But what a retreat. I mean, if you're going to go, what a way to go. I mean, she goes like, you know, if you're going to go like Bonnie and Clyde, that's the way to do it. Right. So that walk down the stairs. And when she talks about those people, those beautiful people out there in the dark, there's the great meta moment. Um, but I want to go back to what you said before about that moment. That moment is so good because she is a good actress. And she, when she does her, her, I'm ready for my close up. When that happens, she's really good. She's good at, in that moment. She convinces you. She convinces Max. She convinces, um, you know, all, all the cops waiting that there's something special going on here. And I want to go back to what you said before is that, and what I said is that she's not a figure of fun. And what she says is often right. Everybody knows the line, right? She used to be big. And what does she say? I'm still big. It's the pictures that got small. Right. And she's right about that. Pictures today are big. They they are louder. The screen is actually bigger. You could see things in IMAX. The budgets are bigger. You can replicate anything you want on a screen with astounding accuracy. CGI is over the top, right? But these movies, they're not as big as Sunset Boulevard. I mean, Sunset Boulevard and Singing in the Rain and, and Rear Window and Casablanca and The Maltese Falcon. These movies are all bigger in a certain interesting way and in a certain really moving way, they're bigger than so many of the movies that get thrown out to us today. So yeah, she is big and the pictures have gotten small. No, I think that the movie is very prescient picking up that her only shot at the same kind of stardom or the let's let's say not stardom, but the same amount of cameras going off as when she would have left a restaurant or something was for her to commit a crime because it reminds me of another William Holden movie reminds me of Network because I think what the movie picked up on is that 
right there's the scene where joe is walking with his girlfriend through the set and they're they're laughing at the lack of reality at the 2d buildings um at the street and then you can leave this street and like go to pirate street or something which is the next street over right there there's something about the about film that by drawing in the movies and trying to really produce art for a decade um became kind of hack work and joe like joe is a is a self-acknowledged hack Right. But, but there's something about the onset of reality media that I think that this movie sees coming. I mean, this movie almost predicts like the OJ trial, right? You can have somebody who is a professional athlete who's on TV all the time, who is even in movies, he's he's in the naked gun and a few comedies and, and pops up, but never is more famous than when he's on trial for what Norma Desmond did. And so I I, I feel like this movie just kind of saw into the future. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Sunset Boulevard. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You can go on the New Books Network and find us there. And where else can you find us, Mike? Letterboxd. Letterboxd. So find us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next. And remember, Mike, we are big. It's the podcast that have gotten smaller. Mm-hmm.